Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. Hey everyone, today we are talking about exploration. What does it mean to truly search beyond familiar topics, past the extremes, past the preconceptions to new possibilities, using things like world travel and science fiction as a jumping off point? So for this fabulously fun chat, I am joined by the incredibly impressive Zach Dykwald. Hey, Zach. Hey, Joanna. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. So uh, Zach is actually incredibly well-known in the industry. And if you Google Zach, you'll get a whole bunch of awesome videos that you can watch where Zach speaks. However, for those of you who don't know Zach, uh, Zach will get you to introduce yourself. Wow. I'm blushing. I I now feel like the the bar is high for me. (laughs) Um, All right. So background. um, I'm from the States. I, I grew up in California, went to school in New York. And why I'm here is I've spent most of the last 12 or so years in China. And um, as a youngish person, wrote a book, it came out when I was, I think, 27, called Young China, How the Restless Generation Will Change Their Country and the World. It's narrative nonfiction about the evolving identity of the post-90s generation in China, which is a pivot generation in the country. Really, really fascinating. I also run a, a market insights firm called Young China Group, Market Insights and Consulting, and we basically help people develop a people-first understanding of the country, particularly moving past preconceptions and limiting beliefs about China today. I love that. And I love that it's people first as well. And you and I have spoken about this a little bit, but people first in the sense that you're really trying to get to what is the real person in China like versus I think a lot of the very simplified you know, maybe stereotypes or the extremes of how we usually paint the Chinese person. And you've done that firsthand, right? Because living in China, and I think you've lived in those parts, those pockets inside of tier two cities, or maybe even tier three, where you got to experience what people, what the everyday person was actually living like, right? For sure. I was primarily in tier two and three cities. And I think well, there's a saying in, on the Chinese internet that I think about often. It's It directly translates to your butt determines your brain. But the idea is that where you sit in the world, the people around you, sort of the gossip that you're hearing, the conversations you're having, your view of other places and other people to a much larger degree than we'd even like to admit to ourselves determines the way you think. It determines your worldview. And one of the big issues with our understanding of China, and I think our understanding of most places, China just happens to be particularly consequential and the place is far more opaque to outsiders. One of the big issues is that we're looking only at first tier cities and we're looking primarily through journalism. I don't mean to knock journalists here, but particularly with a, with a country like China, it does focus on the extremes, you know, super rich, super poor, Maserati driving, for die, you know, second generation rich, or like the dog eating festival in Guizhou, mm. ghost cities outside of outside of Shanghai, or overpopulated subways where people have to get shoved on. It it doesn't give you a view of the average, and so a lot of my work has been focusing on trying to help people understand what's normal, what's basic, what's everyday, particularly outside of cities like Shanghai, where most everyone is based. Mm-hmm. And so 
why China? Why did you decide to go and have that experience and really dive into the Chinese culture? Yeah, it's going to sound silly. And it, and it kind of was. I, the reason is science fiction. So I, I went to a public school in California and ended up going to Columbia in New York and always had a love of science fiction. And even in school, I was studying how cultures integrate scientific development and breakthrough using literature as a proxy. When it came time to study abroad, I had taken one semester. Columbia has a, a kind of onerous but necessary language requirement. And I had taken one semester of Chinese my freshman year. And by the way, I hated it. But that one semester opened up some doors when it came time to study abroad. And when you look at the pamphlets for where you want to go, I was looking at France and it kind of looked like a history book. You know, it looked like the history of modern philosophy, of modern art, modern governance to a certain degree. And then I saw Hong Kong and Hong Kong, the pamphlet for Hong Kong at Columbia looked like the cover of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which of course became Blade Runner, the movie. And that was it for me. I had never been to Asia. My interest in China was, and, and China extended was pretty basic. I realized very quickly, first, what an exciting place. I mean, to have a place on earth that makes New York feel just completely and utterly boring is unique. And second, when I was traveling to mainland China, gosh, the distance between what I was seeing, hearing, feeling, you know, just through basic conversations with young people versus the way that China was being described to us back home in the press, and I don't want to like rail against mainstream media here, but there's, there's some, there's some limitations to that. That distance has been intoxicating to me, that gap between perception and understanding that what, what's happening and the way it's described. And, and I've really tried to live in that gap for the last decade plus. That's incredible. And what an amazing opportunity as well. Also, what I love is your link to science fiction, which we're going to talk about a bit later, but you know, I love how, um, Ray Bradbury said, Science fiction it's the, is the history of ideas, the history of our civilization birthing itself. There's so much connection to real life and to better understanding, you know, different parts of ourselves and different people from different parts of the world and where we could go in the future. I can imagine that when you first went to China, it probably would have been a little bit of like how the Western world views China, which is as an outsider. Did you find that as you were learning the language and as you were speaking, you know, Mandarin to people that you became more of an insider, like they could, you could see more of the real China by speaking in their language? Absolutely. I, I mean, I firmly believe that language is the key to culture and it's not just the key in terms of, yeah, you can obviously have conversations with people. I, I've gotten in this, into this with a journalist friend who, who doesn't believe that Chinese should be a requirement for China-based journalists. And it's like, how can you write about a, a people if you can't speak to them? How, how can mm. you, and, and this by the way is a big issue in the business world is often people are only interacting with the most Westernized China-based team members. So the people who have spent much of their life immersing themselves in the English language so that they could have that conversation with their US-based or European-based or globally-based partners. And that in and of itself is this enormous availability bias. But the other cool thing about Chinese is it's obviously it's a key to the people and the conversations, but as you're learning the language, so much of the, the culture is hard baked into the linguistics, the DNA of, of these, you know, 5,000 years. It's sort of like this eye rolling number when everyone talks about 5,000 years of history in China. True. Uh, but you can just sort of, you're excavating 
sort of a different way of of thought. And it, it sounds silly. They're like different frequencies in how I interact. So it's not just the words. Like if you were to directly translate conversations I'd have with my friends in Chinese to English, they still might not make sense. It's a different, it's a different way of being. And so inhabiting that, inhabiting those two personalities. I used to think of language learning as the process of sort of bringing my Chinese personality closer to my English one, like making sure I could communicate and express myself in, in such a way. And then as time goes on and you get better, my Chinese personality also sort of tugs at my English personality and there, and there's an interaction, but they never fully overlap. It's not, they're not the same. Mm, that's so interesting. It really makes me think about, you know, when, when people are born in another country, like uh, I'm thinking, obviously I'm thinking about myself. Like I was born in Poland, you know, I speak Polish and I was raised in that way. So sometimes inside of my brain, Polish words pop up and I'm like struggling to find the right way to communicate myself because I like the words have a completely different association in your mind, in all of your senses from the original language. So some things are not fully transferable, but it's a, it's a really interesting thing to do to go and stretch yourself. And I feel like I had it easy learning English, but <laughs> learning Mandarin, you know, would have been such a huge challenge, but then you then took it to the next level. And now you've got the think tank where you, you help businesses to understand what you've been able to understand so what's been like the most rewarding part of that and being able to transfer what you've learned firsthand to other people? This people first approach is important to me. And, and one of the things that appealed to me about the business world was that here's a group of people who much more so than government and much more so than individuals in a lot of ways are incentivized to figure it out to build a real bridge of understanding, of communication, of engagement. It's like sort of the, the joke of capitalism, right? That like the largest communist country in the world had the greatest capital-based revolution in the last 30, 40 years. Understanding China today isn't about efficiencies anymore. It's about understanding people. It used to be about how many shirts or how many widgets or how many gadgets can that factory or that province create in a month. Great. You weren't interested in how people feel. Today, understanding China and particularly understanding the consumer, but understanding the broader ecosystem is about understanding what gets people excited, what keeps them up at night, what, what do they want for themselves, their family, their country. Those are, those are people questions. And then, of course, when they pick up their, their wallet or now their phone, which, of course, has their mobile wallet, they become consumers. But the difference between a person and a consumer is so slim. I thought of it as the same work I was doing with with the book, but doing it at a scale and, and with resources that I was never able to access as an author. And particularly for Western businesses, understanding the Chinese person, it, it does, to your point, it feels like there's such a huge gap to even understanding human beings. Like we, we live inside of marketing insights, but we talk about consumers, we talk about transaction points. We don't really spend a lot of time really deeply understanding them. And then for the Western companies trying to understand, like you said, the foreign Chinese consumer, they probably are basing it on a lot of those historical types and what's come before versus, or even shallow stereotypes, obviously. What's the thing that's really surprised you and what you've learned about, you know, how Chinese culture and the history has shaped Chinese people? And the traditions that I think it seems like they really still hold on to and respect and, and ring true for them. But then that 
juxtaposition with modernity and probably more of the true aspects that we don't see? Ooh, dense question. First is you're exactly right. It rubs up against Western preconceptions in, in really abrasive ways, specifically on this issue of, of what I call the Shanghai fallacy. The Shanghai fallacy is rooted in, the, in this belief that for China and for most non-Western countries, modernization means Westernization. So the Shanghai fallacy is this. It's, it's you have these Western executives or investors or whoever it is, they go to China. Maybe they go to the Great Wall in Beijing. That's great, but they spend most of their time in Shanghai. Um, they have this incredible guide who spent most of their life, again, immersing you know, with a mental diet of Western-focused things just so they could have that conversation with you. You go to the Bund, you probably have a great meal, you have a beautiful glass of wine, you read the brands you recognize, you ignore the ones you don't, and you go home thinking, gosh, for China, modernization means Westernization. Now, Shanghai is the least representative city in China in terms of that process. And one of the most difficult lessons for large brands to learn that I, I believe they've truly learned over the last two or three years to a certain extent is this idea that young people in China don't just want to be treated like American millennials or Gen Z with different haircuts. They have this own sense of self. They have their own cultural inputs. One of the most interesting things when you study cross-cultural literature and what really got me sort of intoxicated with China is there's, you know, when you're reading a book in the West, you can kind of like go back to like, oh, Odysseus or like the hero's journey. Like there's a, there's a few, you know, there's a couple dozen consistent comparisons and, and sort of literary callbacks that you get. In China, it's an entirely different constellation of references and stories that guide the culture, that guide what's cool, what's masculine, what's feminine, what's sexy, what's not, what's scary, what's, what does stability mean? And learning those and recognizing that they're not just going to become ours because we want them to is usually a tough lesson, but an enormously important. And the second part, the pace of change. You talked about stereotypes and limiting stereotypes. And we developed something at Young China Group called the Lived Change Index. It's basically how much change you've lived in in your life and particularly focused on the post 90s generation. So it, it basically focused on per capita GDP so you can compare globally. As an American born in 1990, I've watched our per capita GDP, so the basic quality of life, increase two and a half times. So maybe the schooling my parents could have, were able to afford two and a half times better, or the vacations we could take two and a half times nicer, or however you want to imagine it. Imagine it in really concrete terms. My friends in China who were born in the exact same year, 1990, I watched their per capita GDP increase 33 times in their lifetime, a full order of magnitude faster than me and my peers here. Maybe it's just a developing country thing. What about India, right? Always compared to China, the two demographic giants of the world, uh, lots of great corollaries between India and China. Born in 1990 in India, your per capita GDP has increased six times. Brazil is around 3.2, Germany 1.9. When you look at the top 40 economies of today, the one similarity you have is that every other country in the last 30 years have watched their per capita GDP increase under 10x, with the exception, of course, of China, which is 33x. And so what that means is if you're like a strategy expert in New York and you're trying to imagine how things have changed in Stockholm, you can imagine it pretty well because it's changed about as fast as your home. 
And, and that's true of more countries than we'd even be comfortable set. Like you, in Brazil to Germany, you wouldn't think that the amount of change is, is comparable, but it's more comparable than you think. The exception, of course, being China. And that means two things. First, it means that stereotypes outdate faster, right? And, and most people aren't equipped to, to judge that. And second, it means that for Chinese people, the rule of the last 30 years, not, not the bug, but the feature of Chinese society has been rapid change and the need to adapt, 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 or get washed away. Yeah, adapt and keep up. And you talked about this in one of your presentations that I'll link in the show notes, but I think it's really beautifully put that oftentimes we focus on the what when we're looking at the China market, but we need to focus on the end user and this like scaled mass adoption and adaptation of themselves that people are doing. And it kind of makes me think maybe beyond even their behavior, but in terms of their mindsets, like how quickly they need totally. to flex. It's 100% a mindset issue. It's sort of, I mean, it's intuitive when you think about it in terms of ecosystems. Like if you grow up in a river having to swim upstream versus you grow up in a lake, you have different muscles that have had to develop to keep up with your surroundings. In China, you're, you're talking about a place that's developed 10x faster in the last 30 years. The rule is change. There, there's a there's a saying from Deng Xiaoping from the 1990s, and it's sort of cheesy to quote this, but the saying is It means crossing the river by feeling the stones, which is a beautiful way of saying, and this, by the way, is Deng saying for the entire economy in the 1990s. It's a beautiful way of saying we don't we don't know exactly what we're doing. <laughs> you know, there's this we're on one bank, which is poverty. The the opposite bank is development. There's this rushing river of time and history. We're trying to find steady footing, one rock at a, one rock at a time underfoot. We're expecting to slip. We're expecting to fall. We're expecting to have to adapt. And that attitude of needing to adapt has washed over the entire population, not just the wealthy, not just the innovators. And so when you think about users and consumers in China, it's crazy that people who use phones are called users. It's like, it's a little unnerving, but it's true. And, um, and you think about why things like mobile payment has penetrated 90% of WeChat users instead of 27% of iPhone users. There's this question of, okay, who's, who has had to adapt and adopt faster? And uh, you know, your surroundings define who you are to a certain extent. And, and there's no doubt that that is one aspect of what makes the consumer in China super unique. We always focus on innovation, and how China was the copycat, and now many of us are, are copying China. Uh, but there's this obsession with that 1% of innovators. What's the next best shiny thing that they're going to create? Innovations only have value once people begin to use them. And so you could have the best idea in the world, but if you only have 100 people putting it to use, it doesn't make a difference. What makes China's marketplace so unique is you have this extraordinarily massive and uniquely adaptive and adoptive population. Um, well, you know, you just sparked something else for me, which is that, you know, a lot of the times in the US, for example, we talk about generating change in our industry, for example, getting people to eat and buy more sustainably. And one of the biggest challenges aside from infrastructure and capability there is people's mindsets and their behaviors and changing that. So you would think that China would be a market that would be right for that kind of thing, you know, like positive change in the world. How do they, how do we help to push through 
more sustainable solutions, for example. And I know there was that clean plate campaign in China, which is an amazing example of that. But I think oftentimes in the US anyway, we would say, oh, Zach's talking about like a new app or a new marketing campaign or something to do with technology because technology is, you know, something that China is so well known for when it comes to growth and change. We don't often think about all of those other things that are, you know, more linked to a person's value system. So are you seeing that actually coming through? It's just not being reported on in the Western markets? Well, it's just not obvious how to report on it, right? What I like so much about this, the Live Change Index, is it's totally agnostic when it, in terms of its implications. Like the implications for, you know, we work with some payment clients. Like it's obvious with, with payment clients, right? Like payment is having its Kodak moment. If you're a credit card, you're seeing yourself getting already, you know, replaced by large tech companies in China. Is it going to happen other places? Fine. That's super obvious. Or even in the consumer marketplace, it's like, okay, like live streaming is picking up there in a really actionable way. We're no longer localizing for China. We're innovating for China. We have to actually be ahead of our other marketplaces. People get that. But in terms of things that change fast, like a really easy example is actually attitude towards premarital sex. In 1989, I think it was 89% of the population wasn't having sex before marriage. And in recent polls, that number is now 92%, but it's 92% of people having sex before marriage. So like a light switch, attitudes towards sex, intimacy, dating, totally turned on their head. Everything has evolved at China speed, but but people care about how many phones and backpacks and and sort of lollipops are being sold for good reason, by the way. And again, this is why I, I think the business world is exciting is because there is that reason to pay attention because it moves the needle for businesses. Yeah. And, and just so eye-opening also when you talk about it, that there's just so much for us to know more about and more deeply understand beyond the... Uh, is you know simple pictures that we get painted and i love how passionate you are talking about the china market and the china consumer and i know you said 33 times the growth which is incredible you also said super unique so i can understand also why you've written a book young china and you have this company have you thought about doing exactly what you've done and picking yourself up and going to a completely different market and learning the language and understanding that, like, have you thought about that? Totally. And I, I won't be able to do it as well. And the reason is this. When I was 22, I my time was far less valuable than anything else in my life. And so I could just throw time at immersing myself in China in ways that I, I wouldn't be able to do in other places. I really want to spend a lot of time in India. One of the dreams of Young China Group and dreams I have for Young China Group is to be able to sort of like what I tried to do with the Live Change Index, which is it's kind of a blunt tool, but it allows you to picture things. I want to do generational studies across across the world. And so do I think I'll be able to get the level of nuance and intimacy that I feel sort of in my bones with China? I, I don't think I ever will with another place. I could try. But like, I think we've talked about this before, I have five or six continents in the last three years, spent a lot of time in Egypt. Uh, I love the MENA region. It's super fascinating to me. I think places that are culturally and linguistically distant are particularly interesting to me, as well as misunderstood. Egypt is such a great example. Like after the revolution, the journalist left. And so the last thing most people know about Egypt is a country in revolt. And so getting to sort of immerse myself in, in those places that are a little bit more opaque, I'd love to do it. I, I, it's as yet unclear how, 
how to make a life out of it. Yeah. Well, I, I also love that you are more drawn to those places that aren't on, you know, potentially other people's, you know, tra- travel bucket lists and maybe are a little bit less glamorous on the surface anyway. You know, I feel like a lot of the places that we don't want to venture off into are those places that we don't understand as well. And then it becomes easier for us to create that divide and to create that ultimate misunderstanding of what those people are like. So I love that you're like drawn, you're pulled into, you know, more deeply understanding the gray in between the black and white. Well, it's just, I think it's just the most interesting. We're, we're in like this age of, of global exploration, but different than the last age of exploration, which was like violent. And you know, it was, we don't need to talk too much about the 1500s, but like um, there's this, there's this moment of, of global cultural access that ne- that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. And so to explore the the nuances of, of, of places, particularly that are kind of misunderstood and try to amplify voices that otherwise kind of get, you know, flattened out into these political crises, like that to me is just, it's so interesting. And in the same way that I loved sort of cross-cultural literature and science fiction, you know, science fiction is about world building. And I think there's so many cultures and, and places around the world that just get flattened to a specific crisis or a specific political moment that's get co- covered in the news to be able to do world building for, for these misunderstood places um, or poorly understood places. My mom hates it, by the way. My mom wishes, I'm 32 if, if anyone's curious. And so I'm sort of like at that age where my mom is like, when is he going to just get really into Paris? When is his passion going to pivot to Lake Como and um, hasn't happened yet, but but my mom still has her fingers crossed. Meanwhile, you're like, mom, come and check out this two or three city in China for a right. holiday. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't light her up. Although, you know, a mother's love knows no bounds. So I've been quite lucky to, to have her visit in, in places that probably wouldn't be on her, uh, on her top 500 list. Yeah. And you're creating something so unique. So I'm sure that she's as proud as can be. And I think what's really amazing as well is that you're, you, you're obviously a very curious, very intelligent person. And you talk a lot about history. So you really understand the context of how things were shaped, but you talk a lot about the what if and the future and, you know, getting back to the, you know, the, the super fun topic of science fiction, you know, so much of that is asking the what if, trying to extrapolate out how things could play out for people, for, you know, technology, for things, but also, you know, really thinking about how we shape the future. What what kind of a future do we actually want to be a part of? I find it really fascinating that with science fiction, so much of it is almost not even science fiction. It's like dystopian fiction or speculative fiction. It's like flipping reality on its head to go, well, actually, this is the reality that we don't want to happen. So I love that your brain automatically goes to that what if. Is that the biggest pull for the love of science fiction for you? It's a big part of it. I um, By the way, you just landed on something that's that's so disappointing to me about modern science fiction is, and particularly when you talk about film and TV, it's so much easier and so much more compelling to think about how things go wrong. This is my issue with Black Mirror is like, they do a really wonderful job thinking about the future, but it's only the worst futures. And um, I think it's yeah. I think it's a much more daring task to try to think of a, a world that isn't awful, because one of the responsibilities of science fiction, I think we talked a little bit about this with Kai Fu Lee and AI 2041, which is that 
What science fiction does is it seeds a, a vision of a possible future into the collective consciousness of the world. Minority Report is a really easy example of this, but actually you brought up Ray Bradbury before. First, Minority Report. Minority Report was like, you know, you can, from, from those hand gloves that like later turned into the Wii and virtual reality, um, Ray Bradbury, I actually got to interview Ray Bradbury when I was a 20 year old, super what? cool. Um, very, yeah. very late in his career. Um, yeah, somewhere my name on the internet, my name is linked with Ray Bradbury, which was a very proud moment for me. But he, I mean, like the tablet, flat screen TVs, like the, the amount of inventions he gave us a vision for, and then we went and built it. Like that's the responsibility of science fiction. People, we're all very creative, but often we just sort of built what we imagine the future will look like. And, and the people who imagine for us what the future will look like are science fiction authors. One great example of this is in the 1990s, I remember reading a short story that was envisioning what the world looked like when the dominant hegemonic world power was East Asian. And so that for me was kind of the first glimpse of what does it look like when cultural gravity, sort of that nexus around what which much of the world spins, what happens when when there is enough cultural gravity, so economic, political, and cultural clout in Asia, what happens when it can start to way that uh, change the way that our world spins? What does it look like when marketers are more interested in earning Chinese money and non-American money? What does it look like when when cruise directors and designers are starting to you know change the placement and even how they price certain rooms based on the principles of like feng shui? What does it look like when clothing and and, and ideas of masculinity and femininity are not defined by by Western culture. I don't think we're there, and I'm not suggesting that that Easternization is a sure thing, but I think that new balance is is being negotiated right now. And it's science fiction authors who are thinking about it first. Exactly. And I love how you're talking about, you know, massive scale power shifts. I guess the, the impact of how that's envisaged in science fiction is not often spoken about. It is often the technology that we get drawn into and the dystopia, like you said. And I have another example of where it's science fiction is a prime medium for env envisaging a positive future, which is Star Trek, right? Because not maybe not the Star Trek that we see on TV today, but the original Star Trek was like, this is us in the future when we are better human beings. Like we've worked our shit out. We know how to collaborate <laughs> with one another. We know how to create, you know, really efficient, sustainable technologies like the replicator. They had the bloody 3D printer basically all done. They had the iPad, they had communicators, they had the AirPods, but more than anything, they had that ability to get along with other cultures, to get along with each other, to create, you know, this, um, you know, Starfleet, right? Like this system that united not only Earth, but all planets. Like that, I think that's the, the beauty of what Gene Roddenberry created with Star Trek was, to your point, it was the what we could be in the most positive, optimistic sense of the future. Absolutely. And and my dad is a huge Trekkie. And I was wearing a shirt earlier today from Singularity University. And, you know, Singularity University means different things to different people. But this guy, Peter Diamandis, who started it, had this idea of, of creating visions of the future and daring people to do moonshots. And he is the enormous Trekkie. You go to any X-Prize conference and it's all... 
that all there, there's an there's an era and generation of thinkers who are absolutely informed by a more positive vision of the future than our generation. And I think that's such a I think it's great for them, but I think it's such a bummer for us. You know, Diamandis, his book Abundance is one of the few reminders that as tough as things are right now, and they are tough, and I feel it, and I know you feel it, and our generation and younger definitely feels it, they're actually quantifiably better, materially better than any other moment in history, from access to food and water, to to gender equity, to access to the global financial system, like to the ability to to not be in dire poverty or not die of starvation or some like from from top to bottom quantifiably better but it doesn't feel it and i wonder how much is it the responsibility of storytellers to help build us a better narrative because right now the 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 narrative and the 24-hour news cycle and the way that media is incentivized to really focus on the worst of things how much is that creating visions of dystopia and then and through those visions of dystopia that turn into tv shows and games and movies that gross a huge amount of money it bums me out i don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole because the implications aren't great but it it is something i i think about how how these narratives guide the reality that that we end up constructing so what's a science fiction or you can go down, you know, fantasy or other, you know, similar genres, if you like, what's like a really positive or optimistic story that you personally love? Oh gosh. I think you might, you might be catching me flat footed here. I was just thinking how like the three body, we were talking about the three body problem before we started recording. Not super positive. It's about sort of the, the difficult game theory issue of, alien discovery and and how you should probably destroy another culture first no i don't want to i don't want to spoil it for anyone but not not like a real pick-me-up and i'm reading one called waste tide right now which as you could imagine it's not it doesn't it's about as positive as it sounds i will say that i i'm disappointed in how difficult it is to think of an answer to that we talked about 2041 before. It's written by Kaifu Li and, and Chen Xiu fans. Kaifu Li is one of the people who is most invested in, in AI. He runs something called Sinovation Ventures. The Chinese name is way better. It's just Innovation Factory. So he is, he is one of the most invested people in creating the future of AI in the world. And so he partnered with the science fiction author to write visions of what the future could look like when, when the promise of AI comes to be in the near future. So 2041. And keep in mind, again, this is one of the guys who's most invested in making that future a reality, not just theorizing, but like, I know that some of these are going to hit because I'm, I'm helping making them happen. And the biggest issue I have with the book is the first chapter was awful. Like it, it, it was well-written and it was a wonderful book, but it was a future that I didn't want any part in. It was by no means inspiring. And I don't need like inspiring, like lie to me, but help us imagine something that's a, that can show us the wonderful applications of these technologies. And but the book, by the way, got there. But, you know, anyone who writes a book knows the power of the first chapter. And, and I regrettably don't love my first chapter of the book. But for, for the first early chapters of 2041, there was this image of, what, of AI in the future that was distinctly dystopian. And this from the person who has the responsibility, I think, of showing us a vision that isn't that. And so... Gosh, I remember seeing a, a movie with my dad like four years ago and we were watching the trailers and it was, I think it might've been Interstellar. So it was longer ago than I'm remembering. 
but it was a science fiction movie. And so all of the trailers were science fiction. And it was like one dystopian trailer after the other. It was like the rock saving someone from a, from this earthquake disaster. And then it was like, you know, one after the other dystopia, dystopia, dystopia. And we're not, it, it sells, but there's a reason that people in our generation and Gen Z, it's difficult for us to imagine 2050. There, there's legitimate questions about whether or not the world will exist that there's people who aren't having kids because like it's, it's quantifiably impacting people's perceptions of what possible. And maybe that, that dire attitude is justified. We're sort of sleeping in the bed that we made in that there, it's difficult to imagine positive visions of the future. It is, it is. And so much of storytelling and specifically science fiction seems to be like a cautionary tale about human frailty, human flaws. And so even like all of my favorite sci-fi books and movies are about space and space travel and space exploration. Like I love Interstellar. I could watch it every day. But again, it feels like a cautionary tale of like, we have depleted the resources of our planet. But then, you know, ultimately in most of these stories, maybe not 2001 Space Odyssey, but most of them, you get this like positive, optimistic ending where we have persevered and we've come through, you know, whatever awful thing that's happened. Again, maybe not like Solaris also is another example where actually it's not such a positive ending, but it feels like it, it well, science fiction in general is just such a reflection of human behavior, human flaws and frailties, which and is maybe cells, why it's so fear dystopian. Cells better. Fear cells better. I mean, even thinking back to minority report, uh, uh, but at the end, there's this moment where like human kindness kind of wins. It's not human kindness per se, but it's like this incredible battle against the predominant technologies to show that there are different realities that could lead to a specific person's innocence in something. I totally spoiled it. I'm very sorry. But you're basically relying on this on this hope that human morality intercedes. And, and there's a huge burden of proof necessary to make that happen. It was the same issue with 2041 and Kaifu. The story and the subsequent stories, two or three stories after that, were all about how like, yeah, it's really bad. And obviously, like with anyone who, who has large data sets knows that like biases in data can reinforce racial stereotypes or reinforce racial prejudices. Or re and it's basically saying that's definitely going to exist. And you better hope that there is some great moral intercession to counterbalance it. But if you're looking around in the world right now, it's hard to imagine that. It's hard to imagine human beings' best nature sort of taking over. This is making me think I should be writing some like positive science fiction here. I should totally change my career, my career choice. Uh, but I feel honestly, in, in, in truth, getting back to the work that I do, showing a picture of China that isn't all doom and gloom, that isn't all scary, that isn't all government. Because the thing about media and journalists is they're not writing about anything wrong, but they're only focusing on a corner of China and the government stuff. The government stuff is the worst of it. This is why I was afraid of becoming a journalist because if I was becoming a journalist, I knew I would only be writing about, for the most part, government, which is in a lot of ways, the worst of, of modern China, the most contentious of modern China. And I didn't want to hate China. I didn't want over time, and I watched this with my journalist friends, like you just end up bitter towards the country instead of being able to spend time on the people. So yeah, I'm not writing positive science fiction exactly, but look, any any imagination of how the future will unfold that's not negative now feels feels like it's sort of a contribution to that is trying to help us imagine a more a more positive collaborative future that doesn't that doesn't have to be bad.
Right. I, I love that. I love that optimism. I can tell Zach that you're, you're just a naturally curious person. You're always sort of like exploring lots of um, interesting areas and exploration, I think is probably just in who you are and in your blood. But what is one thing that you like to do to sort of push yourself to look into new areas or to look outside? Hmm. This, this might arc back on a conversation you know about, you and I have had before about business books, but I, um, hmm. spoiler alert, I don't read any, but I love reading fiction from other countries. And so whenever I'm about to travel to a place, even if it's for three days, I'm, I'm a big reader and I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to like flex on that, but it's, it's part of, it's just, it's just part of how I go to sleep and it's part of how I stay sane and, and whatever it is. And so, um, I love reading books by authors in a country that I'm going to be in or trying to understand. There's that great, I think it's a Ken Kesey quote, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it's not real. And so much of, of modern fiction can capture or narrative nonfiction. Like I basically it has to have a story for me. So I, I'm a big advocate of that. Stories can make that happen. And so even narrative nonfiction, I'm a huge fan of it. But it can really, it brings a place to life. And stories are so powerful. And I think you've you've told us a lot of really powerful stories in this podcast. So thank you so much for everything that you do. And um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Totally my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for everything you do. I am, I'm excited to listen to other, other pods and, and track in the future. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and rate the show. Until our next exploration, keep looking outside. Bye.